we should always be filled with and and good health and only smachot. Um, thank you, Ms. Harkstark, Talia Harkstark. She's uh, part of the Yeshiva Flavish High School faculty. She's brilliant. She's amazing. We're so honored to have you come speak to us and, and impart all your knowledge. Um, we're excited to get into this Tehillim series. Um, can everyone hear me? Yeah? Okay, so today's class is actually dedicated in honor of Lena Asher, who's sitting in the back there. She's been um, a very dedicated volunteer. I'm not talking about you. Okay, by the Lishma Learning Committee and the Parent School Partnership Committee, she's been just an active parent in Yeshiva Flatbush programming. Um, so thank you, Rena. And the learning that we're doing today is Lilui Nishmat Rina's father, who passed away this year, Moshe Ben Rina. Um, his neshama should continue to have an aliyah, and the zahut of our learning should be for him. Um, ready? Ready. Thank you so much um, for inviting me to learn with you today. I am so happy to see familiar faces and meet new faces and have an opportunity to learn with you. Can everybody hear with, hear me a little louder? Okay, and also, if you want to move up, that would be amazing, but also I will speak loud. Um, the most important thing is that everybody has a, te- a text in front of them. So let me know if you don't have one and there are some extra. Guys, there's chairs here in the sheet. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to just give, since this is the first of what I understand to be a series of Shirim about Tehillim, I wanted to give a few introductory remarks. Um, and then I hope for the rest to be a, a discussion where everybody is participating. Do you guys want to move closer? Do you want to move everyone closer? Sure. Do you want to move closer? Oh, you want to move to the middle of the Sure. Yeah. Now we're like So, I kind of just want to start with the question of why do people recite the healing with an end or a hope in mind? You know, like what is it that we're trying to affect when we do that? And that's a question that you can really ask about Sila in general. Um, and I think it's really important to start with that question and to establish that the recitation of Tehillim, like any Tila that we engage in, is not a magical formula um, to get something that we want. Um, even though that was something that was like appealing to, thank you, that was appealing to people in the ancient Near Eastern world that the Torah emerged in as a way to try to like explain the world, that they, the natural world that they lived in. You know, now we have the advances in modern science. And so we're not really looking to religion to explain the natural world. 
we look to religion, I think, more to give meaning to our existence. And so I think there are a variety of reasons why people might turn to Tehillim um, in a time of need or a time of joy. And there's one in particular that I wanted to focus on today, but I want to also acknowledge that there are multiple multiple reasons um, for anyone to, to engage in this practice. First of all, for example, I think that people, human beings, find rituals comforting. Um, and so you can say that about the ritual of daily tefillah in general, that that can be like a meditative practice that, um, you know, just we, we have habits and, the, and, and that's comforting for the human mind to have a sense of stability. I think you could also say that, you know, people really want to feel a sense of belonging. That's really important to people and that's really comforting. And so when you learn Tehillim or any kind of Torah, that's really connecting you to Jews across time and space. And that sense of belonging can be really comforting. And then, of course, there's the content of the words that you're studying, um, where if we're reading words of wisdom and uh, connecting to deep human truths that are like resonant to us, that can help us explain, or not explain, but help us to confront the challenges that we're dealt with in life. And I think that it sort of leads me to the, my real point, which is that I think that the reason that we turn to Tehillim in times of need and joy is because the Jewish approach to engaging with the world is through texts. That's what Jews do to, to, to engage with the world. They learn texts. And I think there's a lot of uh, proof we can point to for that. Um, some that I just want to highlight are, you know, the foundational narratives of the Torah, there is an emphasis on speech and language and words. So, for example, God creates the world through ten, not dramatic acts of power, but simple acts of speech. The, the word amar, the shoresh of amar, of said, is repeated ten times over the course of the story of Biryat HaOlam. And similarly, the, another famous example of ten acts of speech are in the giving of the Torah, the Aseret Hadzibrod, which translates not to the Ten Commandments, as we often call them, but literally the Ten Words. Um, and so when God creates the world and when God uh, creates, so to speak, the nation of Israel, it's through these acts of speech. And I was actually, I was reading an essay recently by this Israeli rabbi and scholar, his name is Rav Yoel Binun. Um, he teaches Tanakh and Talmud in a variety of places, among them Yeshivat Haaretzion. And he's a very, very interesting person. And he actually articulated this in a way that I thought was really nice. He says that at Matan Torah, God, in giving these 10 words, these Aser Hazibrot, is trying to transition the people from a sort, a sort of immature spiritual existence to a more mature spiritual existence because he's transitioning from governance based on miracles we've seen to governance based on words in the form of law <coughs> um, and what he says is he, he, he draws on how like the rabbis point to this linkage in the words of Ness 
miracle and nisayon, which is a test. And the idea being that um, where the relationship between God and the people is a relationship that's based on nisi, miracles, that's really a relationship where the people are constantly testing God, that it's a relationship that lacks trust in a certain kind of way. Because in order to believe, you need to see. The same way like a child, you know, if, if, the, if the parent is in front of them, is happy, and if they leave to go to the bathroom, they start crying because they've been abandoned. Um, and so um, God is sort of trying to transition it, um, B'nai Israel into a more mature spiritual spiritual and moral existence by governing them through words. Um, all of that is really just to say that I think that Jews turn to texts in times of need. And that's sort of the, the lens through which I want to approach our study today. Um, in fact, actually, wh- where I went to high school, Cynthia went to high school with me, um, we prayed in a Beit Midrash that um, faced a wall that was windows from floor to ceiling. And of course, right in front of that wall of windows, there was an aron. And on e- either side of the aron, there were these floor to ceiling panels, wooden panels. And on each panel, a different parak from Tanakh was carved out into the panel so that the light from the sun that shone through into the room was through, was through the words of the Torah. And, and similarly, you see, look out into, onto the street through the words of Torah. And I just, I'm just sharing that with you because that is the visual that I have in my mind when I say that Jews engage with the world through the lens of Torah. Um, and so I was asked today to talk about the topic of success as it relates to Tehillim. And I'm hoping that, you know, I guess, let me just say one more thing. I think, like asking myself the question, like how preparing for this, like uh, how do we, what is success? Like how, how am I supposed to define this and what am I supposed to talk about? Um, and I think it's really hard to live in a community that has norms, you know? It's, it's really hard. Like, and, and a lot of times the standard for what it means to be successful is just like how well did you meet the norms in the community? So did you go to this school? Did you get married by this age? Did you have this many number of kids? Did you raise your kids in this way? Can you afford this kind of home or can you go on this kind of vacation do you look this kind of way you know etc etc and like that's the standard of success and I think that when we define success in that way there are two things that trouble me about that one is that a lot of those measures of success are in the material realm they're like physical things to attain and Number two is that it's a, it's a framework of success where you're always just like looking to get the next thing. Like it's, it's about racing to get to, the, to that next stage and it, it's constant and it never really ends. Um, and so I guess rather than asking everybody here, like how do you define success? And in the spirit of like looking to 
Torah text to engage with the world. How did the Mizmorim of Tehillim define success? Um, and I don't even want to make the assumption that every Mizmor of Tehillim will define it in the same way. But I actually thought it would be nice if this is the first in a series that we could just open with the first Mizmor and answer the question through the first Mizmor of Tehillim. And maybe how can this definition helped like center us in our pursuits for a good and thriving life. Um, so what's really interesting about the first Mizmor of Tehillim is most, most of the Mizmorim start with a kind of introduction. Often that introduction is like telling the conductor how it's supposed to be musically arranged or something like that. And this doesn't have an introduction at all. And that sort of hints to the idea that it itself is the introduction. This whole parak is the introduction to the entire book of Tehillim. And so I guess a question that we might want to ask ourselves as we're learning is why, why is this the first one? Why is this a good introduction to the book of Tehillim? And what does it tell us about the book of Tehillim as a whole? So... I actually think maybe what we'll do is we can read it. I want to read. It's very short. It's six suki. I think what we should do first is read the whole thing to have a sense of the whole. And then a line-by-line line analysis to understand its parts. So I'm going to read it in Hebrew, and you can follow along in English. And I'm going to ask you if, in a sentence, you can tell me what you think it's about. Okay. Ashrei ha'ish asher, lo halach batza rishaim, uvederech hataim lo amad, uvimoshav litzim lo yashav, ki im b'torat Hashem chefto, uvitorato yehege yomam balayla. Vehaya ke'etz shatul al palge ma'in, asher perio yiten b'ito, Okay, so in a sentence, if you're looking along in English, that's great. What is this about? Like, what is the... What is this trying to say? Any ideas? Yeah. But like that it starts with what not to do before it tells you how you could be in that positive realm. Like first you have to recognize what's not good and what will be beneficial for you and your family and your life and so on and so forth. And then it kind of like introduces you to what the positive is. But there is that middle ground. A hundred percent. It's absolutely right that it's starting out with, you know that it's trying to define who the happy person is, and it starts out by defining who the happy person is not, in order to then eventually explain how the happy person contrasts with this person. And, yeah. No, I just think it's interesting that the first word is happy. Yes, it's not me too. It's not a successful person, a good person, a righteous person. It's the happy person. So I think that's like a really interesting start. I totally agree because, yeah, go ahead. I just have a question. Um, in the Hebrew 
translation, it's not saying the word happy. What ashray ha'ish means happy? Ashray, like from like osher, is happiness. Oh, but okay. it is a really interesting. Osher is ayin. Well, um, wealth. Osher with an with an ayin means wealth. Okay. And osher with an aleph means happiness. But However, it's more of a lucky. It, it's, it has a connotation of, yeah. of I don't know either one. Okay, so, and that, that makes it even more interesting to me then because I wouldn't even really think that the Torah, like, does Torah, like, care that we're, like, happy? Like, I don't know. I think the Torah cares that we follow the Torah. I think the Torah cares that we're moral. I think the Torah cares about Am Yisrael. I think it cares about Eretz Yisrael. I think it cares about moral values. I don't know if it cares that we're, like, happy, I wouldn't know that. So it's interesting to me that the first word of this entire book is happy. I totally agree. Especially given the fact that Tehillim, I think, is mirrored. It, it's split up into five books, which I don't think is a coincidence. I think it's trying to mirror itself off the five books of the Torah. So like the five books of the of the Torah of Tehillim is happy. I think you're right that it's very interesting. What is it trying to, how does it, what's the message? Who's happy? Yeah. Okay. So what it's trying to say here, if I had to say in one sentence, how do I say in one sentence what this is saying? I don't know. The righteous person who like follows the Torah is going to prosper. And the wicked person who doesn't do that is going to fail. So therefore, it pays to be pious. That's, that's if I had to say in one sentence, that's what it's saying. Yes, very similar. And what's interesting is when I say it in a sentence like that, I'm like, I don't know, does that, is that true to your experience of life that the righteous person prospers and the, and the wicked person, you know, gets his justice and fails? Like, no, that's not the world that we live in. In fact, like, I kind of was talking to my dad about this the other day, like, like, why is there so much pain in life? Like, life is so hard. Why is life so hard? And, like, we were kind of talking about how, like, maybe living well, live, in order to live well, you have to experience pain. Like, it, it almost feels like it's, like, fundamental to life. Therefore, I don't understand this sentence of the righteous prosper and the wicked don't. Like, no. So, I like how I'm really happy that you already started to analyze not just what the text is saying, but how it's saying it. And I want to continue to do that now because I think that that adds layers of nuance that this like pithy statement of Sadiq Vitovlo, Rasha Viralo just like doesn't quite capture. So can we, can we talk more about this first pasu? Ashrei ha'ish asher. Happy is, I, I, I made it gender neutral because we're all women here, so, okay. Happy is the human who, lo halach be'atzat rishaim, has not walked in the wicked's counsel, v'derech ha'taim lo amad, and the path of offenders has not stood, v'moshav li'tzim lo yashav, and in the session of scoffers has not sat. So, we've already noticed it's interesting that it starts with the word happy, and that it starts with a definition of what the happy person is not. Is there anything else that you notice in this pasu that's interesting? I know I highlighted some things to direct us, but you can notice whatever you want. 
Yeah. Fire. The? Fire. Oh, okay. So first of all, yeah, you're noticing this alliteration here. There's ayin shin, I, I, I mean, aleph shin, aleph shin, aleph shin. Ashray, ha'ish, asher, you're wondering if that's like, if the fire thing, if, if the fact that those are the two letters that are alliterative are significant. Actually, let's come back to that because you just made me think of something. Maybe. Really maybe. I'm not sure. So first of all, the fact the alliteration is making us, it's like, come, come listen to me. You know, it just wants you to pay attention to it. Like, don't just, don't just like take one sentence away from me. Like, listen to me. A hundred percent, the alliteration. I think it's also suggesting not that the person is actually doing the wicked or offensiveness or whatever it is, but following in life, somebody else who does that. Yes. A hundred percent. So, and first of all, and it does that in three different phrases. There are three different ways that the sentence says that a person is not following in the ways of a group of people that's doing bad stuff. And this, in whatever fancy language, is called parallelism. There are different types of parallelism in poetry, in biblical poetry, and this is called synonymous parallelism because basically each um, word in each phrase parallels exactly the word in another phrase. So, so that's, that's what I highlighted here. These colors are not random. So, right, like the low halaf parallels of derech low aman. I'm tracing the blue ones now. Moshalitim low yashav, and the verbs are also parallel to one another. Halaf does not walk. He does not stand. He does not sit. Or the nouns. There's a rasha, there's a choteh, and there's a lance. And how this group of people is described is there's atzat rishayim, counsel, like from Eitzah giving counsel. Derech, the way. Moshav is from, from sitting. I think he, he just wanted it to be, um, he wanted to try to mimic the alliteration. So he said session of scoffers. But you see how each each um, phrase parallels the other. And do you see any, like, relationship between these three, three phrases? Like, what, why, why did I need to say it in three different ways? You know, like, any ideas about that? Yeah. Well, the verb is, I, and I thought this was interesting. First it was, like, walk, which is an action. That's right. Then amad, which is, like, kind of, like, stagnant, but you're standing, like, you could go one way or the other. Yeah. And sitting is is not choosing, like just being there. Um, I thought it would be opposite. Great. I thought it would be sitting, then standing, then walking. Okay, great. So actually, I won't read it with you inside, but the even Ezra um, mentions both of these options. He says, okay, one way, yes, you can look at it, the verbs are going from active to passive. So from more a more severe wrongdoing to a less severe wrongdoing. But that would make the rasha, like, so it makes sense because the rasha is the worst and he's like the most um, active. And the lots, like from the word, um, yeah, it's, it's really like with words to be cynical, kind of, like to, to make fun of, like. So that would make sense that it's like from most to least severe. But the other way of thinking about it is 
you could say that, okay, when you're walking, you're just like, you're like walking by like these group of people like doing that stuff. And when you're standing, you're like, okay, no, I like that. Now I can like hear your conversation. I can like listen into your conversation. And then when you're sitting, you're like, you are immersed in what's going on here, you know? So I think that you can say, see it as a progression from most to least or the opposite in terms of severity. Um, okay, anything else anybody wants to notice about that? I think um, the other thing that, the, the main thing that I, before we go to Pasu Bet, is that we're seeing that the, the, the mizmor is basically like depicting a person. Oh, you mentioned that before. It's he's called an ish. He's not called an. He's not called a tzaddik. Okay, so this is an ordinary person walking through life and being confronted with moral choices. And the other thing that the Ibn Ezra points out about the rasha is that he's whether he's the rasha holech. Like, the rasha is walking, and there's a sense that the rasha is, is in constant motion. He's in constant flux, and in, an, in a negative way. It's, it's a directionless motion, um, and a sense of being, like, restless. And the person, the ish, who's maybe, um, maybe going to join their ranks, the Ibn Ezra is seeing as, like, maybe being enticed by that, and so this way of being, first of all, it's it's signified what Stephen Ezra is saying is, is by this like restlessness, this restless motion, and also about being enticed and and pulled by things that are beyond your control. So a sense of being not in control and restless and like constantly moving. Okay, that was just something I was going. Okay, so pasuk bet. Now these first words of pasuk bet ki im are signifying a, a transition. So that means that it's a key word or a key phrase in this mismore. Because unlike the, the unhappy person, what, do, what should the happy person, or I shouldn't say it like this, but at first it's defined what the happy person doesn't do. Now it's defining what the happy person does do. What does the happy person do? Bitorat Hashem Chetzo. Hashem's teaching is his desire. And in God's teaching, he or God, God's teaching, he recites day and night. And this is another example of parallelism, by the way, but this is a little bit different. This I think is called synthetic parallelism. Doesn't you don't need to know this, but but basically that it's not that they're not saying the exact same thing. The Torah Hashem obviously parallels with Torah To, but Yehegeyo Mamvalayla is an explanation or a fulfillment of a desire. So how does this happy person fulfill his desire? It is through the recitation of Torah. Um, okay, anything anyone wants to say about that? Okay. Um... I think that there's just one other thing that I want to point to for one second is that this the Yomamba Laila piece, I think that it's starting to point us to another theme of this Mismore, which is time. Um, so I'm just saying the word time and then we can come back to it. Okay. Verse three. So I don't want to read it. No pressure. 
Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, thank you. Yeah. You can read in Hebrew English, whatever you want. Right. Okay. So, we have here now a, a simile. Okay, and so what what is the comparison that the author of this Mizmor is making? Okay, so there's a tree that's planted by streams of water that bears fruit and is successful. So what's the analogy? Yeah. So so yeah. So the the human is this tree, and well rooted in water is Torah, right? And the fruitfulness is the blessing of the human. Now, we similarly, just like Pasuk Aleph, there's this like three phrases that after the word Asher, three different phrases that parallel each other. So, Piryo Yitan Bito, it bears fruit in the right season. Its leaf doesn't wither. And everything that it does, it prospers in. Now, what's, there's something weird to me about the last line. Yes, that's right. So what is it, what is it doing? It's making it a man again. Exactly. It's like pulling you out of the... It brought the metaphor or the simile to like illustrate the thing and now it's like being it's pulling you back out of the the metaphor into reality that we don't know now oh wait are we talking about the eighth we're talking about the ish um and i think you're totally right that it's doing that on purpose um i think that another thing that's really interesting in comparison with pasuk alice is that i guess what's different about this the Ish who is who is happy versus the Rasha. You were saying that the Rasha is in motion, is in con- is in halach, like he's he's walking. The tree is rooted. But the tree is rooted and it's stable. Exactly. And so it's saying something about how happiness is not about movement. It's about spaces. It's about stillness. Um, now this I want to. You'll have to tell me if you think that this theory is compelling. I don't know. Because here's the thing. It's the first Herak of Tehillim, which I told you there are five books. And there, the other, other of the first Prakim of Tehillim mirror the first Prakim of Breshi. I know that for a fact. Like, if you look at Herak Gimel, I can, we can do a whole nother share about it. So I think... When, when you hear an eight and a pre, and we're talking about good and evil, and making moral choices, and following in the way of God, like, what are you thinking of? What? Yeah, like, I'm thinking of Gan Eden. So I want to know if this is, like, a, this is a biblical allusion to Gan Eden, because, but I'll tell you what's throwing me off. He uses the word ish. It doesn't use the word adam. That's what I would have expected. 
It talks about desire, just like Chava had, but that, the word in that context was Tava, the word here that's used is Chefet, different word. Okay, yeah, there's eights and pre. Well, every time there's an eights and a pre, that's what it means, you know? It talks about Rashan, it's going to talk about it's Sadiq, but that, the, the words in Gan Eden are Tov and Ra, it's all different words. So, I don't know if it is a biblical illusion and then we have to answer the question, like, to what end? Like, what, what would be the purpose of adding that here? And second of all, I have to prove to you why that's a compelling connection. So I think I have a proof for it, but we didn't get to it yet. And then you can tell me if you agree with me or not. Okay. Anything anyone wants to say about that, that Hasu? Okay. Yeah. Sarah. Um, when it switches from the Yeah, we'll talk about that actually in a second. And yeah, and I think it also is, it fits with the tree metaphor because what a tree does is that it bears fruit and that fruit is nurturing for others like in the future. So it's, I think that that's true. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you said about the stillness and the movement, yeah. I think maybe what I, I don't know if it's necessarily meaning like, Actions like physically still and physically moving, but could it also be because prayer is meditation? It could be the stillness in your mind versus like you'll be happy when it's still. Yeah. Versus movement and like your mind always running because like it's the whole concept of meditation. It's maybe showing us that Tehillim mm-hmm. is a form of meditation. Totally. I mean, I think it's saying that about the whole Torah. Right. About all Torah study. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's really, really nice. Also, um, I was thinking more like what she was saying about it being very similar to Shema, how the tree and the food is just food. And for B'nai Israel, like being able to have food in a place helped them stay, whereas before they had to, you know, other people had to just keep moving to find food wherever they were. So if you have food, that gives you food. If you have trees that give you food every season, you can stay in It allows you to be stable. Yeah, right, 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 right. Great. Um, okay, so now there's this second um, transition phrase, locane. We, we've been talking, so first it was like, what the happy person doesn't do. And then it had, what the happy person does do. And then in Pasukimo, it was basically saying like the reward or the result of being righteous. And now it's going to say for the, for the last three Pasukim, the fate of the non-righteous Okay. The wicked are like chaff that the wind scatters, which is continuing this metaphor with the tree that they are unlike the the tzaddik, or he didn't, he's not called tzaddik, the ish, who is stable and rooted. Um, the rasha is not. And I actually think it's really interesting, just if you look 
Gimel versus Dalit. Gimel is talking about the reward of the righteous, and Dalit is talking about the punishment of the wicked. Gimel's so much longer. There are like four different phrases to talk about the good life that results from meditation on Torah. Whereas there is like one sentence to talk about the negative outcome for the Rasha. I'm curious, what does anybody have an idea of what it's trying to say through that? Or what meaning it would be communicating through that?
we have another example here of parallelism, but this parallelism, and the parallel is between the derech of the tzaddikim and the derech of the rishaim in this pasuk, except the parallelism is antithetical, that they oppose each other. They um, contradict each other. So Hashem knows the derech of tzaddikim, and the derech of rishaim will be lost. Now, what's strange about this parallelism is that it's not exactly parallel. Like, there's something kind of off about it. If if the first part of the sentence is Yodea Hashem Derech Tzadikim, the second sentence should really say, what do you, I'm trying to think of how it should say that in a way that's much more parallel. First of all, what name is not there? Hashem. Okay, so there's no Hashem in the second part, and I think that that's sort of hinting at God is not in the life of the Rasha, that there is, there is no relationship at all. Um, and the other thing that's really strange to me is that what's, what's the verb that's the opposite of toved, lost, or death? Well, yeah, it should be. It should be. To live or to last, yeah. It's not it's not lost in the sense of like can't find it, even though it's the same Shoresh. But here that word is Yodea, which is not the opposite of Toved. And I think that's a very strange usage of the word here. So remember when I said that I think that this is talking about Gan Eden a little bit? This is maybe my maybe proof for it because this is this is the one Shoresh that actually is all everything else the themes are all the same it's the human making moral choices but having desire and good and bad but none of that language and it's talking about knowledge and stuff, but now I have the word of that and I think so first of all Yodea in the context, or Da'ad in the context of Tanakh, is also connotes from the, from the first example. But yeah, what's well, more than it's it's intimacy, it's physical intimacy that that produces children, you know, because to, to know someone, like to really know somebody, and so it might be the way that it might be the opposite of die is because what it's saying, it's a way of saying reproduce or live or last so the tzaddik's way of life will be lasting will be enduring will bear fruit like you know while the rasha's way of life he might be like constantly on the move and whatever but it's it's gonna it's gonna disappear into nothingness and it will not last now you can see here that we can see now like that this whole the structure of this whole entire poem is kind of like a, a chiasm in a way it's the structure is a b b a it talks about the righteous i mean it, t- it talks about the rasha and then it talks about that's in pasu aleph and then in pasu bet it talks about the tzaddik and then in pasu gimel it talks about the reward of the tzaddik and then dal hey and vav talk about the punishment of the rasha and so, just even the structure of the poem is very, very neat. Okay, so now we've 
read through the whole thing. I guess the question that I'm going to pose is, like, how does this more define, like, I don't want to use the word success, like, human thriving? How is it, how, how has it just defined that for us? And I also want to know if, if it feels, like, resonant to you. So, first of all, what do you, what is, what's, I guess, like, I already asked you when we first read it, like, what's, what does it mean? What's the message? But I wonder now if you can, if you would say it a little differently, what the message is and what, how, how it defines what it means to live a successful life. The water like Torah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So Torah is is essential. I guess there are a few things that I wanted to point out. Number one, I think that this Mizmor has a very interesting definition of reward and punishment. And it's not what everybody here thinks that it is. I think that it's describing, it's not like from some external force that's going to be like, you were good today, so I'm going to give you Gan Eden, what you were saying before. No. It's really saying that the good life is the natural outgrowth of our choices. And Gan Eden is not some otherworldly realm. Like, that's not what we're talking about. The good life is the natural outcome of moral choices. And so basically, what is happiness according to this Mismor? It's moral goodness. And how do you achieve moral goodness according to the Mismor? Living a life of Torah. That's the, okay, we shouldn't be surprised with the agenda of the Torah is to tell you to follow the Torah. Um, but that's what it's trying to tell you. Like, don't seek that don't you shouldn't be like seeking some reward in Allah Haba. Like that is not the point of a life of Torah. The point of a life of Torah is to live a life of moral goodness. And that is success. That's it. Like, does that does that guarantee that there's no pain in life? I didn't hear anything about that that made me feel that I'm guaranteed a life free from pain at all. I can experience pain with that definition of success. Um and I think that that's, first of all, really meaningful in terms of what Skarva Onesh means. And second of all, in terms of what happiness means. Um, the other thing that I wanted, there are basically like three thing, other things I wanted to point out. Number two is this, this tree and the chaff like imagery. So number one, I think it's saying that well, all of us have said before that like Torah leads to a life of rootedness and stability that will stand the test of time. And I think that that's to me also a chidush because success could be, like we talk about like a race to success. Um, and I think that's something pretty profound about, that we already talked about, but I just, I just want to make sure I say it at the end, is that Success is, is literally not a race, and it's literally not 
about constant motion. In fact, that's actually depicted in pretty negative terms here. The ability to sit in stillness and like meditate on the words of Torah, like that is what is valuable. And I think that's a chidush. Um, And I also think that the, the tree, just to expand on the tree metaphor, two other things I wanted to say about that. One is that the tree bears fruit. And so success is not just rooted a life of rootedness and stability it's also a life of nurturing you know that gives to others um and then i wanted to talk about like the purpose of the gan eden illusion maybe which is that if you think about gan eden like adam and chava had to make this choice basically like either they could eat from the eats hachayim i mean whatever they weren't allowed to eat from the they could eat from the etachayim and live forever, but without da'at of tov and ra. And generally, we see the types of people who, who don't have knowledge of what's right and what's wrong and who walk around unclothed and without shame are children, are innocent children. And so either you could live a life of eter- eternal life of meaninglessness, that's what it means to eat from the Eitz HaChayim. Or you could eat from the Eitz HaDa'at and have knowledge of what's good and bad and experience shame and, um, you know, be confronted with now <laughs> these really difficult moral choices. But you can't eat from the Eitz HaChayim anymore. You can't. So either you could have an infinite meaningless life or you could have a finite but meaningful life. And that's the choice. I think that since this Mizmor is talking about what lasts, like what's eternal, and what it's saying is that a life of Torah is eternal, you know, in Mishlei, the Torah is called an Eitz Chayim. And it's almost as if, I think, like what the Tanakh is saying is like, yeah, you cannot achieve literal eternity. That's not possible. But the closest thing that you have to eternity is your legacy. And that, and the Jewish person's legacy, is the Torah that you transmit from generation to generation. And so I think the purpose of the biblical illusion, maybe, is to talk about what is, what is eternal. You know, I mean, we, we are not eternal. We, we are not enduring. But the Torah is. And so that's what connecting yourself to it is the closest thing that we have to, to eternity. And then finally, like the last thing that I want to say is that this Mizmor is never talking about, even though it starts with an ish, Ashrei ish, it's not talking about only an individual. This individual finds himself B'derech Rishayim or B'derech Tzadikim. He's always in community. And so I think that it's another message that's consistent with Tanakh in general, or with Jewish life in general, that the individual is never just an individual, that an individual is always entwined in community. And that also means that happiness and success is not an individual endeavor. It's a communal achievement and it's a communal effort. And what a happy person is, is um, living in, in a community that is committed to mishpat, that's committed to, to justice and to righteousness, living in a moral community. And so it almost sounds to me like the Mizmor's definition of human thriving is that Torah learning, 
will allow you to create a moral community and together you together with that moral community can bring goodness to the to the entire world um and i guess i do think that that's a really we talked about how maybe this first is more as an introduction to separate to as a whole because i think that's a really nice way to introduce any book of tana it's like here's why you should study me you want to know why you should study me because it's going to result in uh, a moral community that will then contribute to a world of moral goodness like okay yeah sure i'm gonna read you like why not you know um so i think i just um wanted to model uh, a meditation on Tehillim that what it looks like to not just sort of like recite it really quickly and then be like okay and now I'm gonna get the promotion right like you know like but that that actually meditating on these words like I, I actually really understand why someone would turn to it in a time of need it's very beautiful um, so I'm happy to stay after for more conversation, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for learning with me. Thank you. Um, thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Does anyone have any thoughts or questions? Start? No pressure. Really no pressure. <laughs> I was actually going to say, Yeah. I was really focused on the words, Edat Sadikims. Yeah. And thinking of a world like the righteous person gets reward and the wicked gets punished, which is obviously not the way the world works. Yeah. But if you surround yourself with Hidatsadikim, we're human, we make mistakes. But that those you know, like our tree that's rooted, yeah. they'll bring you back. Totally. And I think that goes back to community and of course. That. Totally. That's really beautiful. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I think that it uh, says that um Hashem knows the doing small things or by being in a place that's in the in positive, God knows you, even if you don't always know him. And yeah. like he's there for you. Yeah. And for you to go to and come back, you know, go and yeah. come back because we're human, so that's yeah. what that's what we do. But we yeah. know you. And yeah. That that I think is the beauty of Tahilim because it's there for you when kind of like as a it's a transport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really nice. Thank you. Okay. Thank Great. You. Thank, Thank you so, so much. much for your contributions. That was so meaningful. Thank you. Okay. Is everyone lunch?